From the National Weather Museum and Science Center in Norman, Oklahoma, this is When Did the Storm Begin? A podcast bringing the history of weather to the forefront. My name is Pat Hyland, chair for the National Weather Museum and Science Center. Today's episode, the T-28 Storm Penetrating Aircraft. If you've ever flown in a plane before, you've probably experienced some turbulence, either from just the clear air itself or from nearby clouds and thunderstorms. Notice how planes generally avoid going through those big, towering thunderstorms? For good reason. Thunderstorms can have chaotic motions in all sorts of different directions and have hazards like lightning strikes and hail that can potentially damage the aircraft. Wonder what it'd be like to actually fly through those thunderstorms? One individual doesn't have to imagine it because he actually did that. Tom Warner is one of the pilots of the T-28 storm-penetrating aircraft, which, if you've ever visited the National Weather Museum and Science Center in Norman, Oklahoma, is restored and displayed prominently in our 8,000-square-foot space. You can't miss it. Our own Dr. Elizabeth Smith recently spoke with Tom Warner to talk about this amazing aircraft and its research flights, as well as his experiences and perils flying directly into thunderstorms. Buckle your seatbelts for this wild ride. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, and what you do? Sure. And first of all, I'd like to also thank you for inviting me to, to come and talk with you today. Uh, you really, it's a neat opportunity to, to share about the T-28. So I've lived in Rapid City, South Dakota for the last 30 years, and that's kind of where my career in weather research and aviation all has taken place. I got started in aviation, wanting to fly since I could walk. And uh, everything I did growing up was was geared towards becoming a pilot. So this opportunity to fly a T-28 was definitely something of a, a lifetime opportunity that was consistent with, with my passion growing up. I got involved with uh, meteorology or atmospheric sciences in college. Uh, I needed a technical degree to become a pilot in the Air Force. And so I was in ROTC and I needed a technical degree for my scholarship. And atmospheric science sounded really interesting to me because that's the medium through which I was going to fly and to better understand the atmosphere and weather. I thought it was a, was a great opportunity. Uh, and I'd always been interested in the weather as a, as a kid, uh, although I was scared of lightning <laughs> growing up, surprisingly, and, and now I love it. So in college, I got my atmospheric science degree and in pilot training uh, for the Air Force, my degree was out in California, is at the University of California in Davis. And for pilot training, I spent a year in Enid, Oklahoma, and was introduced to the severe plains thunderstorm for the first time and fell in love with severe weather. I, I, these storms were amazing. The lightning, uh, the, even the tornadoes, I didn't get to see a tornado that year, but uh, just uh, the intense thunderstorms were just amazing to watch. So I, that sparked my interest in severe weather. And then I came to Rapid City after my year in, in Oklahoma, and I flew B-1 bombers out of uh, Rapid City, South Dakota that, that were stationed here. And after I got out of the Air Force, uh, I got into general aviation and taught people how to fly here in Rapid City. And the, the Czech pilot, the person that represents the FAA and gives uh, the students I was were teach, teaching my 
check rides or their check rides uh, was the chief pilot for the T-28 storm penetrating aircraft. And the uh, South Dakota School of Mines and Technology here in Rapid City, I was familiar with, uh, and I was familiar with this storm plane, but I really didn't know much more than that, uh, other than they used it to, to fly through thunderstorms. So the, the chief pilot approached me and said, you know, we're looking for another pilot to fly this. Uh, we fly through the heart of uh, thunderstorms. Would you be interested? And I looked at him and I said, absolutely. What an what a incredible opportunity to be able to fly through thunderstorms and experience that type of weather firsthand and, and contribute to science, but also to be experienced that from the inside was just an amazing opportunity. So I, uh, I ended up being the only person to apply for the position. <laughs> there was one other person that applied. And when uh, Charlie Summers, the chief pilot, uh, called him up and explained what he would be doing, the guy withdrew his application. <laughs> so I was the only one that, that applied for this additional position. There, there were two pilots that flew the aircraft and they uh, wanted a third one uh, just to split up the time more. And so that's uh, why they reached out and, and he knew my Air Force background. All, all the pilots had an Air Force uh, background or military background. And so they wanted someone with that type of background to fly in this, uh, this specialized aircraft. So I flew that uh, for four years and then uh, they retired the aircraft. And then I got into lightning research primarily because of, of what occurred when I was flying the aircraft. I got struck by lightning. I, uh, I, I did pursue my master's degree and got my master's degree at the School of Mines there using the data that some of the data that we collected from the plane. I continued my re interest in research by studying lightning after they retired the, the aircraft and have since retired from that field. Uh, I still pursue it as a hobby as far as uh, using high-speed cameras. I still record data and such, but it's not an active research. It's more a hobby level and more having fun than getting in there the real uh, deep research. So that's kind of the history of how I came to be involved with the T28 project and 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 the interest that I had going into it, and it really was a, a dream come true to get an opportunity to fly this aircraft. And and I I can't thank Charlie enough for offering me the opportunity to do so. So you got into it already a little bit, but can you share with us a little bit more of the detail of the history of the T28 and how and why it got built for weather research? Sure. The, you know, the T-28 was a, a one-of-a-kind aircraft. And back in the late 60s, there was discussion among scientists as to whether a aircraft could be flown through thunderstorms safely and, and be able to collect in-situ data from inside that, that environment. And there were many that believed that that would not be possible, that it's just, it's a very harsh environment for aircraft and it's just, there's, you couldn't modify a plane to do so. There was a gentleman by the name of Paul McCready who felt that it would be possible and he was, a, he was a very involved in the aviation field and engineering. And so eventually he got an opportunity to create the designs for an aircraft that could be flown safely through thunderstorms. And they, they initially looked at a, a Dauntless dive bomber, an old World War II aircraft. And then they also looked at a T-28 and it turned out the T-28 was a better suited for this role. And essentially the, the T-28, it's a 1949 Prainer. It's a big old radial, single radial engine, big prop, and it's a, a tandem seat trainer with the student sitting in the front seat, the instructor pilot sitting in the back seat. And it was used for training for the Air Force and Navy. 
And this aircraft had many features that would make it suitable to, to be modified to fly through thunderstorms. Um, it couldn't fly through thunderstorms on its own, and really no aircraft can fly through thunderstorms safe in their current state. So it needed to be modified. And they modified the aircraft in the, the late 60s, and it started flying in the early 70s. And the reason that they wanted this type of aircraft primarily was that weather modification was becoming a... Uh, topic of scientific study. And, you know, can we modify the weather by introducing chemicals to either suppress uh, hail production or enhance rainfall? And so they really needed to get inside storms to be able to measure the microphysical properties and thermodynamic properties to see if what was proposed was actually having an effect. And the Russians were involved with this uh, in, at this time frame. And so the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology became kind of a, the hub of weather modification research. And so this aircraft then was going to play a vital role in that research. So they modified the aircraft and they did so by putting armor plating on the leading edges of the wings and, and tail. They put a three-quarter inch Selexan plexiglass that had metal reinforcement for the canopy. And all this was to withstand the hail impacts that they would occur inside a thunderstorm. The hazards that an aircraft encounters inside a thunderstorm uh, is hail. Hail can damage the leading edges of the wings and affect their ability to fly, the aerofoil design. They can add weight to the aircraft by accumulating ice. And the turbulence can be just tremendous, uh, extreme. And all those factors, as well as lightning uh, strike, are very hazardous to aircraft. The things they had to address was the armor plating for the hail. As far as the ice accumulation, it had the ability to spray alcohol on the propeller to keep the propeller from icing up. But there was no icing protection installed on the wings because they've determined that they wouldn't be able to design a system that could be capable of keeping the, the wings de-iced. And, and that was very true. So the, the idea was that if you accumulated ice you, and the aircraft uh, couldn't hold altitude, you'd essentially have to fly back down below where it's warm enough to melt off the ice. And then once the ice is melted off, you can go back up. So we didn't have a de-ice de capability, um, but it wasn't a factor as far as collecting data. You, you were able to get rid of it either by descending to a warm altitude or in some cases the hail would beat off the ice, so it'd clean your wing in a matter seconds. We also sprayed alcohol into the carburetor. We couldn't ingest the air from the outside from like a normal aircraft because it's such a wet environment and ice built up on the air intakes. So they actually put fins on the air intakes to try to split up any hail that would try to come in uh, the normal air intake path, but that would end up icing up anyway and become clogged. So they would divert the air to come in from the inside of the engine cowling. They addressed the, the hail, the ice accumulation, and essentially instrumented with this aircraft with instruments that can measure all the thermic parameters, uh, turbulence, all the, the, the physical parameters that would occur inside a thunderstorm. But the big data that they were trying to collect was the actual hydrometeor shape concentration and, uh, and, and those parameters. And it had an array of instruments on the, on the underside of the wing that could measure from 
the micrometer scale all the way up to hail up to six inches in diameter. So it did this by an array of instruments that would sample different size ranges by using a, an array of diodes. And these diodes, they were in a line and they would shoot light across the gap. And then on the receiving side, there was receiving diodes. And so when a particle went through the, that array of diodes, it would cast a shadow on the receiving diodes and actually be able to create a two-dimensional shadowed shape of the particle. Now, of course, it did this very quickly and would be able to count the number, the size, the distribution of size, all of these parameters related to the hydrometeors that were inside the thunderstorm. And so it could do that all the way from your smallest cloud droplet all the way up to hail of significant size. And so that was the, the real meat of what it could measure in the, uh, the microphysical and the hydrometeor scale. So it had those instruments, it had the ability to measure the electric field with electric field meters. Uh, they had five of them on board and they could determine the charge on the aircraft as well as the ambient electric field as the aircraft flew through it. They also wanted at uh, certain times to be able to uh, determine some chemistry related to what's inside the thunderstorms. Uh, at one point, they had a uh, the ability to, to sense a trace gas that was introduced by another aircraft down low, and then they would fly through the higher parts and be able to sense when and where that trace gas was uh, then relocated by the updrafts in the storm as they penetrated the storm. And then towards the end, when I flew it, they had a sensor that could actually uh, measure the oxides of nitrogen. So NOx gas, which was important uh, in its production from lightning. Lightning produces the NOx gas as a result of the heated channel. And that's a, a gas of importance for atmospheric chemistry, greenhouse gas type uh, role in the atmosphere. So they had a sniffer tube on the top and, and that went to an analyzer in the back seat. And the back seat carried different types of instruments, so it had it depended on the missions. It even had an X-ray detector at one point when X-rays were discovered to be generated by lightning. We started carrying X-rays sensors to be able to detect, detect those flashes. And so all these modifications then were incorporated into the aircraft to be, to be able to fly through the thunderstorm safely and uh, collect all this data. It did that for 30-some years. And it logged over 2,000 hours in storm, uh, over 900 sorties, close to 1,000 sorties, uh, uh, and it was flown by nine different pilots over its career. And it had a number of different uh, roles as far as turbulence studies, uh, dual polarization radar studies. We, a lot of times we were co-located with other radars to be able to measure inside of the storm that the radar was seeing when the, when the radars had the capability to be able to classify the various hydrometeor types. What better way to determine if they're accurate than actually flying through and collecting those hydrometeors as they're occurring? So it was really instrumental in the development of hydrometeor classification algorithms uh, with the new radars and a bunch of different other studies. And normally, always we were, we would work with other assets. So you know, the, 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 this, it wasn't a single instrument platform. We'd be working with ground radar lightning mapping array, all different kinds of things. So it did this for 30 years. I, I just flew it in the last four years of its career, but that was the purpose. And, and it really was a one-of-a-kind aircraft. It, it, it did a wonderful job, but uh, unfortunately now it's retired, just like me. <laughs> 
So um, could you estimate, you know, how many projects you were involved with with the plane and maybe even how many flights you took with the plane? Typically, we would have one major project per summer, and that would maybe last a month in total. Uh, it depends on the, the funding of the research group or the, that was put forward by the, the, the community and what, what they were funded for. Anywhere from two weeks up to a month, sometimes longer than a month. So I got involved with three different projects that I participated in in the, in the four years that I, I flew it. Rarely, but on occasion, they would fly two different research projects in a single season, but that was very atypical to do that. So usually it was a month long, and I logged about 20 different flights into thunderstorms before they retired it. So not much compared to the chief pilot who flew the, the aircraft for over 15 years. He logged hundreds of hours. I learned a great deal from him and he trained me how to fly this aircraft and how to do it safely and, and what, the, what the capabilities of. So those 20 flights, I will never forget. <laughs> and it was uh, uh, something that uh, was an incredible experience. Every single flight was an amazing experience and every single flight was a, a reaffirmation that uh, uh, a thunderstorm is no place to fly an aircraft because it was a hostile environment. And, you know, like I said, without those modifications, the aircraft wouldn't have been able to survive the environment we were flying through. And every time we landed, we said, wow, an airplane has no business flying through a thunderstorm. So on that note, then, um, can you share with us, you know, maybe what it was like then to fly in these storms? Sure. Let me start off by saying that I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't like adrenaline. I, I, I flew it out of pure interest. I wanted to experience a thunderstorm from the inside. And, and to me, I was just very intrigued. And, 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 you know, I have great respect for what the weather is capable of doing. And so when we flew these missions, they were very intense. They were required very intense concentration. And you really had to focus on what you were doing. And you could get in trouble uh, if there was any kind of mechanical failure or things got too rough. Um, it, there are times when we exited the storm because it was frankly just too, getting too violent. And, and we've always had a heading in mind or which way to turn. And we're talking to a person on the ground who's steering us. So that experience is, you know, we would be on standby uh, we'd have a briefing in the morning as far as what is a flying that day. We'd be on standby once storms started to form. And then when one came in our domain and within range of the aircraft and uh, the other assets, we would launch. And so we would take off. And to me, there's nothing more impressive when you're approaching this huge towering updraft and you know that this is a, a, a storm that, that is producing hails, got strong up and down drafts. And you're gonna aiming right for the middle of it. That it really there is there is some pucker factor as far as am I really gonna do this? And and but you know that's fleeting because you're focused on you know, making sure all the instruments are up and running and and everything is uh, running the way it should. And that you're talking with the ground controller and the right part is heading for the right part of the storm. So when you hit that updraft, and a lot of times we would hit it right on the the updraft side, so we were upwind. And so that's usually where you get the violent transition from the ambient air cloud-free into this updraft. And, you know, I guess you could think of visualizing what it might be to ride inside a, a washing machine. <laughs> it, it, it is, you can't see much. It's, uh, 
like a white paper sack and you have fire hose water hitting you from multiple directions because of the of the turbulence uh, usually the updraft was was wet uh, mostly water uh, because we were in the mixed phase region um, you know we would fly in the worst place that an aircraft should fly and that's around minus 10 degrees celsius we wanted to sample the mixed phase region so you have super cooled liquid water you have ice grapple ice particles hail all the all the things that you want to sample and so that region is actually the worst possible place to fly for icing because this tremendous amounts of super cooled liquid water as soon as it hits the metal surface of the aircraft it freezes it and so we would hit that updraft and when you got inside the updraft the turbulence tended to stop uh, just because if it, it wasn't in training any air from the outside it was a uniform updraft but you were you were in for an elevator ride the aircraft would start rising uh, against its will against your will you really couldn't do anything about it other than push over a little bit and we we always tried to maintain a certain airspeed because we wanted to be at an airspeed so that no matter what happened as far as the turbulence we wouldn't stress the aircraft beyond its breaking point so we would allow us to rise up in an updraft we just wouldn't exceed a certain speed trying to keep it in that altitude regime and then you hit the backside <laughs> and now you're going to get into the really heavy hail and downdraft and forward flank and that is really that transition when you go from an updraft to the downdraft was really when you hit hit a wall of, of turbulence and you, and you knew it i mean it really jolted you and if you didn't have your straps strapped tightly uh it was self-critiquing because you'd hit your head on the roof <laughs> so you really cinched down your belt and uh, made sure that you know we did have a parachute although if we needed to get out we would want to exit the storm first before trying to get out for whatever reason and then you know we would continue on into the anvil region uh, we were in typically around 20,000 feet depending on the temperature and we would fly until we broke out the other end and you know a lot of it was just a matter of trying to keep the wings level trying to make sure that the engine was running uh, correctly. And I'll never forget when I sat down with Charlie, my instruction on how to fly the plane was four hours of me sitting in the cockpit and him by me just talking about it because there is no trainer to see that he couldn't go flying with me. And so he sat and we discussed things for four hours. And then my first flight was solo and, you know, <laughs> and you're flying a plane that's, that's been modified. And, and it actually was very easy to fly. It was a, it was a great plane, but I'll never forget his words. He said, you know, it's a matter, keep the right side up and keep the engine running. It knows how to get through thunderstorms. You just have to stay with the aircraft. Don't leave the aircraft. <laughs> and, I, and I'll never forget that. So, and, and it was, it really was a matter of trying to make, stay on that heading. So you get the good data, trying to keep the right side up. And sometimes it was hard to keep the right side up. The other thing that, that I haven't described here, you know, this was the visual experience, but the audio, when that hail hits, it is loud. And, and, you know, even though we had ear protection and a helmet, oxygen mask, all the, all the things that you would have if you're flying a fighter for the Air Force. It was loud and, and it banged that hail hitting the canopy really, really made a racket. And one of the channels, they had a, a video camera that recorded from the right wing and it had two audio channels and one channel recorded us talking as we were describing what we were encountering. 
the other channel, they had a mic at the front of the canopy or right, right on the ca front canopy to listen to the hail impacts. And the, and the scientists could actually get a sense of how bad the hail was from how loud that noise was. So it, it, it was quite a racket. And then when you got struck by lightning, which we all typically got struck, you know, at least once a season, that got your attention as well. <laughs> uh, a lot of times you would know that charge was building up on the aircraft because you start getting what we call precipitation static. And it's essentially corona discharge from the antennas, from your communication antennas. They were creating corona ions and it would actually create static over the, over the radio. And that volume of that uh, static would rise and fall depending on the charge on the aircraft. And there were a couple of times when it started rising and the pitch got higher and you knew you were getting close to initiating a lightning strike. And and there was one time and that it rose up and then bam, it was a, a lightning strike. And the aircraft initiates the lightning strike. And that's usually always the case with, with aircraft lightning. Over 90% of the lightning strikes the aircraft encounter, they initiate it. And it involves the development of a leader from two opposite ends of the aircraft. And in this particular case, I had a camera on the dash that I flew with just to record extra perspectives. And you could see the lightning attached to the propeller. And it usually was the propeller and the tail or the propeller and the uh, trailing edge of the wing. So that meant that the lightning plasma, the forward in the light channel, then pass over the canopy. And it, it does, it just goes right by you. And it's like someone slaps the side of the, the canopy right next to you. <laughs> and, it, and it gets your attention. But it doesn't do much to the aircraft because it is uh, the aircraft is metal, and so it conducts that current on the outside like a Faraday cage. And normally when we land, there would be two burn marks or weld marks that the metal was actually melted away from the, the arc that was attached to those two locations. And we'd have all kinds of divots on the aircraft over its 30-year career, and usually we'd find those two burn marks with a little bit of metal missing. We'd file it out, and then it'd be ready for the next flight. So that kind of gives you a sense of what it's like to fly and 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 my you know most most of the time you know it was as expected or as described by charlie beforehand you know, that first time obviously i had a little more apprehension going into the storm uh, than the second time but uh like i said the plane could do it and it could do it well and so i stayed with the airplane do you have a favorite specific memory about your time flying the t-28 you know, it was always amazing when you when you break out from the side of a updraft. I mean, you, you go from these hail impacts, you know, things flying around as far as getting jolted around, and then to hit that updraft boundary and just pop out in its clear skies, sunny, calm, and, and you can just go from this extremely violent environment into peaceful air and clear skies, beautiful view. <laughs> you know, to me, that was just amazing. It, when, when you make that transition and just pop out the side of a, a thunderstorm, it really was, a, I, I just would sit there and say, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> you know, I just cannot believe I'm doing this. And I'd fly out a few miles, turn around and go back in and do it again. You started mentioning, you know, that your flights were toward the end of the T-28's career. So in the years that have transpired since then, you know, what is the plane story? What happened to it? And how did it end up with us at the museum? You know, it could have been a really sad ending to this amazing aircraft and the history behind it. And thankfully, it's a happy ending, but it almost wasn't. You know, the aircraft was retired and 
we needed to find a, a place for it. And in you know the the T28 team of scientists, pilots, and you know the the maintainers, you know, it's a small community, but we had a lot of pride in this aircraft and and had an amazing history and was truly the only aircraft of its kind that can penetrate severe planes thunderstorms. So we were hoping to find a nice home for it and to be on display as a part of history, as a part of weather history. And so it was given to a museum in in uh, Nebraska with the understanding that the, they were going to put this on display. Shortly after they got it, they turned around and sold it to an aircraft scrap dealer for cash. They had no intention of putting it on display and they wanted just to get some money from it. And we were crushed. Uh, you know, it, it just floored us that they would turn around and, and just get rid of it to, to get generated a little cash for the museums. I reached out to the aircraft dealer and talked to him and begged and pleaded, <laughs> tried to make a case that, you know, this aircraft is something special and it needs to end up in a museum. Would you consider giving it to a museum rather than selling it for scrap metal value? And he understood, but he also had a business that he was trying to, to do. And so he agreed that, look, I will sell the valuable parts, the landing gear, the things that could be of value to the T28 community of, of you know, those people that, that own T28s and, and get my money's worth. But rather than selling the carcass, if you will, for scrap metal value, I'll give it to you. But you've got to get rid of it <laughs> or you got to take it. So I hired uh, the contractor that, that built our house in Rapid City and I and he sent two of his men in a pickup truck and a trailer, and they drove to Nebraska, to Omaha, put the aircraft on a trailer. Now, this at this point, the wings had been taken off. Uh, the fuselage was intact, the, but the, the wings had been separated. It didn't have an engine. It didn't have the landing gear anymore, but the rest was pretty much intact. So, I mean, it, it, there was enough to represent the aircraft. And and really the, the landing gear and the engine is just like any other T-28. The, the parts that were unique were still there. And so they got it on the back of a trailer and drove it to Norman, Oklahoma. And uh, we had uh, talked with uh, Doug Forsyth and Andy Detwater, who was, and Paul Smith, who were the, the chief scientists in the program. You know, we had understood that, that Doug was interested in developing a National Weather Museum. And so he was thrilled at an opportunity to get that aircraft down there. But at that point, you know, the, the museum was still being conceptualized. <laughs> it wasn't, it was, didn't have a place yet. So Doug was able to find someone to house the plane in a hangar until further, no, you know, until they, there was a place for it to go. And so they drove it down to Norman, Oklahoma and placed it in this hangar under the supervision of Doug. And it stayed there until the National Weather Museum was ready for it. And we are so grateful that it now sits where it should be. And that is at the National Weather Museum. And you know, it is a part of history and there's so much history in the museum and cutting edge weather instrumentation throughout the years. This is where it needed to be. So we, we were thankful. We, you know, we were crushed. We thought it was over and that, that this plane would just be destroyed. So I can't tell you how much it meant to the T-28 to, to have a place for it. And that, and it, it is where it is. And 
I can tell you that every TE28 member that has driven through Norman, Oklahoma since the museums opened and, and put it on display has, has, has tried to, to get the, has definitely had the opportunity to get there and, and take a look. And I know that those that haven't want to. <laughs> So uh, I've been there myself twice, once when it wasn't open, but I looked in the window the best I could. And then the other time I did, uh, I was able to get there and actually uh, see it up, up close and personal again. And it was, a, it was a, it's like meeting an old friend. It's a great story. I'm so glad that we're able to house it and we're slowly finding, you know, the other pieces to bring it back to its full self. So the T-28 now does have an engine and it's sitting on landing gear the way it should and now looking like the full piece. So we're, we're thrilled to be able to show it and to be able to show the pieces that go along with it. And now to be able to have this story to tell with it. So thank you so much for being willing to share it with us. Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and, and uh, you know, like I said, it, it is an amazing aircraft and an amazing group of people that had the courage to envision it and to modify it and to operate it. it you know, it took a team of people that were willing to, to work hard and, and see it through. And, and as a result, there was 30 years, 30 plus years of incredible data collected by it. So, you know, we, we're, we're grateful as well. Have an idea for our next episode? Share your ideas and questions for us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at nationalweathermuseum.com or find us on social media. The National Weather Museum and Science Center is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that operates with the generous support of people like you. Help us continue to preserve the history and highlight the future of weather research by donating or becoming a member today. Find out more at www.nationalweathermuseum.com. We'll see you next time for our latest episode of When Did the Storm Begin? as we bring the history of weather to the forefront.